The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So last week we talked about what it means to say that uh, God the Father is creator. Um, what, are we, what are we getting at in that? It's pretty, pretty clear, right? That he made everything, right? Out of what? <clears throat> Nothing, right? So, so uh, Christians have taught for a good long time that uh, there's no such thing as kind of uh, pre-existent matter. Um, we also teach that God, if, if a thing exists at all, who made it? God made it, right? So there's no kind of thing where like some sort of uh, uh, male- malevolent demigod sort of goes out and makes some things. Well, the God of all makes other things. Uh, this is ancient Gnosticism, and uh, Christians rejected it. Uh, because of this insistence, this absolute, and I should say, very Jewish insistence that all things were created by one, by one God, the living God. Um, as we move through the creed, uh, we get to this section um, on Jesus Christ, but it's only when, in the end, we talk about what happens to creation, um, and we talk about sin, and sin is introduced in uh, question uh, 47 and 48. Um, this rebellion that we see in Scripture. Um, Adam and Eve rebelling against God. They bring into the world pain, fruitless toil, alienation from God and each other. Um, Not only do we bring alienation from each other, um, but uh, we bring alienation from God, and we also bring alienation from creation. Um, Note that Adam and Eve in creation, their, their relationship to the created order fundamentally changes. Um, Well, let's ask, how do we see that? What does that look like? They sin, right? And they look down. And what do they think? Ah! <laughs> they're, they're ashamed, right? They're filled with, they're filled with shame. Um, and, and so what do they do? Yeah, they make clothes out of fig leaves, and they, uh, they, they also do something as well. They hide uh, from God, um, which, which, what's that? Yeah, that, that always works, yeah. So they, uh, they hide, and they, uh, they, they try to, uh, to, to avoid what's coming to them. Um, now, sin affects us in a very similar way. Uh, the power of sin, question 48 says, uh, which is present in all people, corrupts me and my relationship with God, with others, and with creation. Because of sin and apart from Christ, I am spiritually dead, separated from God, and under his righteous condemnation. One of the ways I like to put this is we're all dying um, from a terminal disease called sin. It's, it's, really, that, that's, it's really that simple. Um, if you ask Christians why people die, um, we say, well, it's sin. Now, that's not to say that your grandmother died of cancer because she was a terrible sinner. That's not the point. Okay, so please hear me, right? It's to say something else, which is that the human condition, such as it is, is, is that of death. It's defined by death. Um, because at the end of the day, what happens is not that your heart stops beating or that your brain waves stop functioning, but that, uh, but that um, as Scripture says, the, the wages of sin is death. Um, God made Adam and Eve uh, to be living beings. He breathed his own life into them. Um, and uh, the curse that goes along with the fall is, is that of death. So Natalie had a question. Ah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, this is really important. So, so first I want to kind of say a few things, right? Death in Scripture does not mean disappearing. It doesn't mean going away. It doesn't mean ceasing to exist. 
um, human beings will always be eternal beings, right? They're created, they're meant to, they're meant to uh, subsist forever. Um, and this is something we often miss. We think, oh, death means you go bye-bye and that's it. You're no more, you have no more existence. But given what we said last week, which is what? Did God make only the created, only the, only the physical order, or, are there, or did he make the spiritual as well? The answer is yes, he made both. Um, and so what, what does death touch on? On, on both, right? So, so I want to say this really strongly. Death does not merely concern the body, but the whole. And that's why Scripture speaks of, of spiritual death um, as well as physical death. Um, what happens when we die? We're going we're to talk more about that as we go forward. But it's to say that, that, um, that the kind of death which, which sin leads to is not merely a physical death. It, is, it does include a physical death. Would you agree with that? Right? But is it merely physical? No. Um, we're, we face, we face a, a, a condition that goes beyond merely our heart stopping. Um, but we're going to say more about that as time goes on. Uh, which, which, which leads us to one thing, which is, just needs to be said, is that judgment comes. Um, but as we'll see in the coming sections, right, it's God's intent that, uh, that our bodies and souls remain together for all eternity. And we're going to talk more about that. Do you have more, a follow-up? <laughs> this is great, by the way. Don't, don't ever worry about asking questions. That's what this is for. There's actually a pretty live debate about that um, as to whether or not uh, animal death enters in after the fall. I take the kind of traditional position, which is that there was no, there was no death um, in creation prior to the fall, that the fall introduces death into creation. Others take the position that says, well, it's possible that animals could have died and it wouldn't have affected the state of the, state of the, of the created order as good and that would have been fine. But, but I think the traditional position is uh, animals did not die prior to, prior to the fall. In fact, creation was um, very different, right? So um, the traditional position is that, that, um, that the fall doesn't just touch on human life but touches on all matters of creation. And the created order experiences a kind of brokenness because of this, because of the fall. Um, so something that I would, you know, include in that would be things like, um, like animals born with birth defects, um, uh, trees that die, things like that, right? Um, I think the traditional position is, now of course, hold up, this is just another thing. This does hinge on having a very literal interpretation of, of Genesis, so you have to kind of set that aside for a moment. Um, but but, but um, the Christian insistence is that, that without sin, this is just in general terms, without sin, the created order would not experience these issues. So there you go. Right, yeah. And so yeah. if in new creation it's possible that there's a creature living who we now know only as a carnivore. Right. Who has to cause death to survive. Yep. That could have happened prior. Right, yeah. So it's it's these kind of questions that hold up, but anyway, go ahead. No. <laughs> um, so, so this is, we're probably going to get in the weeds here for just a second, but, but if you grew up in a more literalistic uh, tradition within Christianity, um, I think there are Anglicans who hold to that. Absolutely, right? Um, I, I meet Anglicans all the time who hold to literal positions on creation, who are young earth creationists, who are Anglicans, right? Um, I am not one of them. Uh, but... Uh, I think, I think what, what I would say is that this is, this is the benefit of having a doctrinal portfolio, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I hate to even say that, but, but, but here's what, here's, I'll just put it this way. Many of you come from Christian traditions where there's a kind of center pole and everyone's supposed to rally around that. And your disagreements are about where that center pole is, what it looks like, what it says, how it functions. Got it? 
Okay, so like all these questions matter because they're all about where that center pole is. Anglicanism does something quite different, and I think a lot of Christian traditions do this. It's we're going to set the fences where they are, right? So we're going to set an outer boundary, and within that boundary, um, everybody's good. We're going to have vast disagreements about all kinds of things, but they're within the realm of things we can disagree about. Does that make sense? We'll, we will argue all day long about where those fences ought to be, and that's what's going on in the Anglican Communion right now. We're arguing about whether those fences ought to be set where and how they ought to be set, and that's where we are right now. That's, that's the story. Um, and that can be very uh, perturbing to some people because they say, well, but I really want to know the answer, right? And, and I think the answer often is, Within the realm of interpretation of Scripture, there are many different possibilities which you can hold and be an Orthodox Christian, <laughs> um, which can be very bewildering. But I want to I want to kind of say that to you. Um, well, why do we say that? What's what is the source of Anglican doctrine? Holy Scripture, right? It's always Holy Scripture. And there's an understanding that many people are going to come to different conclusions, right? And that's, and that's okay. There's, there's room for that. Um, but let's, let's move into this discussion of Jesus Christ, the Son. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Question 49, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human flesh to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen mankind. Um, Jesus Christ is the eternal word. So you'll know in Scripture that the word of God is spoken of in, in, in terms, uh, well, what does God do through his word? He creates. What else does he do? He sustains creation, right? Um, what else does he do? He redeems. He also does the opposite of redeem. He judges, he curses, all those kinds of things happen through his word. What else? It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but... What's that? He instructs. That's very important. There's, there's, there's teaching, right? The, um, God is a God who reveals himself, um, and he teaches his people about himself through his word. Okay, so Jesus Christ... Uh, the New Testament holds, is that eternal word. Jesus even says to, says to people, you search the Scriptures thinking that by them you have life, but who do the Scriptures testify to? You're like, me. They're talking about me. Um, and, and regularly refers to himself in these ways that um, a good Jew would find blasphemous. Why? Yeah, because you're talking about God, and he's, he's speaking of himself in that way. Um, there have been, it's, it's become rather popular to say something like this, which is just absolute garbage, but it's something like this. Jesus has never claimed to be God. You know, please read the Gospels at least before you say audacious things like that. I mean, like, <laughs> this is really important. Like, just read the Gospels because you'll see that that's not what's going on, right? Um, Jesus says things which draw... Uh, draw the Jews who hear him to want to stone him to death. Why? Because if he's not God, he's committed blasphemy. Okay. Um, what else does he do? He allows himself to be worshipped as God. You look at, you look at uh, the, the scene after the, after, right before Lazarus is, is raised from the dead. What, is, what does Martha do? She throws herself at his feet and she worships him. You look at, uh, in the risen Christ, you see uh, Thomas. What does Thomas do? He doesn't say, oh, uh, uh, Jesus, you know, so good to see you. It is, it really is you. What does he say? My Lord and my God, right? So, so this, this, this claim is unsubstantiated. We, the, and this is where I really want to kind of start off is that it is the apostolic faith, and it can be no other, that Jesus Christ is God. Okay. Um, now, what we say, and this is, what, this is where the, the apostolic witness is, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yes? Okay. Can I have a son who doesn't share my nature? Is, that, is such a thing possible? Have you ever heard of such a thing? No, I can't, I can't beget a frog. 
right? I can't beget pew. I can't beget table. What, what can I beget? Yeah, another, another man, right? Um, another human being. So the teaching of Scripture is that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and therefore shares in his nature and is God in every way that God the Father is. Now, of course, this, this creates this, this essential tension, right, which we'll talk about in a bit. But here's what's taught in Scripture, which is that he takes on human flesh um, to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen mankind. Here's, here's the essential issue, and, and uh, Athanasius speaks to this, and many of the fathers speak to this. Why, the, why this thing, the incarnation? Why is it needed? Why is it necessary? Well, it's necessary because I, as a fallen human being, can I do anything about sin? I'm, look, first, I'm still going to die, right? What else? Have any of you uh, had a, a, like an argument with your spouse or maybe a friend, and at the end of it, you feel very dissatisfied? Because you're like, this is what you think. You think, here's the thing. I can make all of these promises. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to empty the dishwasher. I'm going to take out the trash. You know, I'm never going to say that again. But in the back of your mind, what do you think? Yeah, I can't really promise that. I mean, I'm going to try, but like, I'm, I'm going to fail, right? The same is true in terms of repentance. You say, I'm never doing that again. Do you know? And would it make a difference? No? The, the, state, of, the state of the fall, the state of sin is so terrible, so disastrous, um, that we can no longer help ourselves. And the teaching of the church throughout the centuries um, has been this. We can't even take the first step. So Pelagianism, basically, this, this ancient heresy says, you can basically live a life that's so good and will be so pleasing to God by your own power, by your own strength, even though you're a sinner, that you will merit God's favor. Okay? So that's, that's one position. Uh, Catholic Christianity has always rejected that, and the reason is that's just ridiculous. We can't do that. Um, sin is so disastrous that we can't do that. But... Catholic Christianity has also, has also rejected completely the more moderated position, which is semi-Pelagianism, which is that, yeah, you really can't do it, but you at least got to take the first step. That also is not Christian. That's not Christian teaching, right? The Christian teaching is that our, our, our sin is so bad that God has to make the first move every time we can't make it. And even if we perceive that we're making a move, right, even if we perceive that we're knocking at the door of God's grace, who enables that to happen? God does. That's why I love this, this window behind the font. If you can kind of turn around and look at it for a second. It's this great little Vermeer kind of painting that's put in stained glass, which is, which is what? Do you ever notice what's interesting about this painting? The artist is doing something really amazing here. What's it, what's it in reference to? It's, 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 it's the words of, of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and what? And knock. Okay. So whose move is it? First move. Yeah, Jesus makes the first move. He's knocking at the door. And of course, how's the door depicted? Does he open the door and open it out? No, it opens from the inside. Um, but it's a very clear representation of, of, that, of how God's grace works. It's, he, he's, he makes the first move always. And why would that be appropriate to have right over the baptismal font? I love how all this works out. Well, we're going to talk more about baptism as time goes on, but baptism is not ultimately, in Anglican teaching, something we do. It's a gift. It's a gift that we didn't ask for. Um, that, that, uh, and even if you're baptized as an adult, you recognize, like, God worked in my life and chose me. So if you choose to be baptized, you're, you're saying, I'm out of a response to God's grace, this is what I'm doing. Um, but ultimately, it's God who does it, right? Um, so I love how that all works out. Um, this act of mediation means that Jesus is the perfect priest, um, a mediator between God and man. Why? Well, because we hold that he has not just one nature, but two natures, fully God on the one and fully one of us on the other, right? Um, he is one with God and one with us. And we're going to talk more about how that actually functions. 
What does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves and is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. In Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. I always say this in catechesis classes, but Jesus' mama Mary wouldn't have said, you know, Jesus, Jesus. No, she would have called him something. What? Yeshua. Right. Um, a very intentional name, actually. What's the name reference to? What's the name in reference to? It's not just the, the meaning of the name, which is God saves in Hebrew. What's the reference to? Yeah, the old Joshua of, you know, Jericho, who marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Well, before Jericho, he marched the people across the Jordan River. And in similar fashion to Moses, the Jordan River dried up. Remember this? And he marches them in. They, they defeat Jericho. They defeat Ai. Um, but Joshua is the one who's chosen to do what? Yeah, he leads them into the promised land. He leads them to the salvation of the promised land. Uh, so this name is very, very, very particular. It's, it's meant to tell us who Jesus is uh, functioning as in Scripture, um, who he is. I love this, the way this catechesis works because we work through the names, right? And so there's both the, name, the meaning of his Hebrew name and then the meaning of uh, a more Greek name. So we ask this question, what does Christ mean? Christos is a Greek word meaning anointed one. Old Testament kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles, and he rules now as God's prophet, priest, and king over his church and all creation. Um, Greek is a really amazing language, and many of you have studied Greek, perhaps, and, um, and uh, something happens with this, with this wonderful word which is that it not only means uh, oil or anointing, but it refers to, uh, to giftedness, right? So there's this connection between Christos and Chrisma. They, they work together. Um, and uh, um, we always kind of hold that, um, that in Scripture, um, this, this anointing of God is, is a gift. Um, well, think about it. If you're, let's say you're Greek, right, and you live in Athens and you have an olive press, have you ever seen an olive, like, fresh from a tree? They're really nasty, actually. They're, they're not good for eating. <laughs> what you buy at the store has been soaked in, in good stuff for a while and, and vinegar. Um, but, but you put this in the press, and, and what comes out? Oil. Well, so what's great about that? Okay, do you know that all of Athenian culture is based on, on their ability to produce olive oil? The whole thing. Um, their amazing ability to produce this amazing substance that's incredibly valuable and good. Have you ever had, like, first press olive oil, like, fresh off the press? Oh, my goodness. It's out of control, right? Um, we used to have olive orchards. We lived by olive orchards in California, and you'd go for the pressings, and, and uh, they were big events, you know, and, and um, delicious, like, the most buttery, lovely, like, and so do you see what's going on is the, the olive, and I'm, I'm probably waxing a little bit here, but, but the olive is, is, is just nasty on its own, but, but out of it comes this beautiful and also incredibly useful thing, right? You can grease your door hinges with it. You can, you can, uh, you can use it as medicine. You can put it on your wounds. You can, and by the way, if you ever have, you know, a wound that won't heal, olive oil is amazing. You can just rub it in and it's amazing. Um, it's also a great carrier for other medicines. You use, you use oil to, um, to put other oils on the body. Um, so all these offices in the Old Testament were anointed. They, uh, uh, you'll remember that uh, the prophets were anointed, uh, the priests were anointed, and lastly, the kings were anointed. Um, if you remember the scene in which uh, um, uh, Samuel finds David among the sheep, what does he do to David? He anoints him with oil, right? It marks him out um, as, as God's chosen uh, king. So this is, this is Jesus, uh, what we often call his threefold office. Um, no one in Scripture holds this threefold office except Jesus. So you'll see, uh, we've been reading all the wonderful things, or some not-so-wonderful things about Solomon lately in the daily office, and Solomon does some priestly things, right? 
He does some, um, some uh, kingly things, of course, because he's a king. But is he really a prophet? It's not quite clear that that's how he functions in Scripture. He's about as close as it gets. You think about Moses. Moses is considered a prophet. Um, he also serves in a kind of kingly role. But is he a priest? Mm, it's kind of spotty. Are we sure? David's similar to this. But when you look at Jesus, you see that all these roles are fulfilled in one, in one person. Um, and that's a really, really important thing. Um, another thing that I'd say, too, is that um, just, by, just by some kind of analogy... If you can imagine two nations at war, um, they hate each other. Who would be like the perfect diplomat in that situation? Dual citizenship. Their mother is from one, their father's from the other, right? They speak both languages. Now, of course, the analogy completely falls apart, but it's just to say that, that the perfect mediator is both. Um, and so Jesus is both God and man. Why is Jesus called the Father's only Son? Jesus alone is God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. He is now and forever will be incarnate as a human, bearing his God-given human name. The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that wonderful reference in that answer to Colossians 1.15 that he is the image of the invisible Father, or the image of the invisible God. Um, scripture, of course, holds that God is precisely what? A spirit. Right? That's the best way to put this. God is a spirit. So what's, what, is, what do we mean by that? Can God be seen? And of course, Paul loves this. He's like, no one has ever seen God. No, John says this. No one has ever seen God. Except what? If God takes on human flesh and you see his body, do you just see his body? No. We're going to talk more about this. It's, it's a fascinating theological concept, but it's really important. No, you see God. Would you agree with that? We'll talk more about it, but this is, this is an essential theological uh, thought, and, and there's a lot to say about it, and we will. Jesus, this is the other teaching of Scripture that I think is really important in the second sentence, uh, or the third sentence. He is now and forever will be incarnate as a human. So here's the other amazing biblical teaching in the New Testament. It's not as though Jesus takes on human nature, dies in it, is risen in it, ascends in it, and then just sort of sloughs it off as if it's some sort of skin he puts on. But what? That God in Christ has taken to himself a full human nature and will never set it aside. That's the teaching on the ascension, is that right now, at the right hand of God, there is a human being worshiping, praying, um, beholding the vision of God constantly um, at the Father's right hand. Go ahead. You just summed up a major, a major debate, right? How does this work, right? Um, you know, and there is a debate about this. I mean, I'm reading a book about this right now, Hans Borsma's book, Seeing God. There's this kind of tension, right? Some people, like Thomas Aquinas, will say uh, that, that, um, that, I'm trying to get it right, uh, that, that, the, that, the, that the Son of God beholds in his human body the very essence of God. Yeah, big mystery, right? Crazy, but it's an Aristotelian idea, right? But if you look at the other fathers, what they'll say is something like this, and you see this echoed in C.S. Lewis, right? Which is that the only thing you can do with regard to God who is not only invisible, but boundless and impenetrable is ever increase in knowledge of him forever and ever. 
ad infinitum. But you'll never see everything. It's an, it's an eternal plunge. Epicatastasis, what they call it. It's an eternal plunge into the, into the, into the Godhead. So like... <laughs> Well, it already is in the resurrection. Like, the, the resurrection is, a, and we're going to talk more about this, but it's a, it's a sort of first fruits of, of a general resurrection. And therefore, now, of course, the question is, is the resurrection physical? Yes. Yes, of course. But it's also spiritual, right? I mean, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's sown, it's sown a... This is really difficult, but it's sown a natural body is really the best translation, right? Raised what? A spiritual body. Now, does that mean it ceases to be natural, ceases to be physical? No. But it means that it's now defined by the characteristics of spirit. We'll talk more about this when we get to the resurrection section. But it's essentially to say that um, something happens in the resurrection of Jesus, and there's a lot more to be said, and we will say a lot more about it. There's something that happens in the resurrection uh, that means that um, that his physical body, though still physical, is no longer limited in the same way that our physical bodies are. There's a deep change that goes on. We'll say more about it. Um, go ahead. <laughs> Good luck, right? We're getting to the absolute central mysteries of Christian, of Christian believing at this point. That's basically where we are. Um, and, and that's where very little can be actually said. Um, and we'll talk more about what, what the Christian hope is as we get through this, but um, we've got to get through it. Um, should we move on to our Lord, what this means uh, and how this, how this serves? What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their rulers, and over every aspect of my personal, social, professional, recreational, and family life. I surrender my life to him and seek to live every part of my life in a way that pleases him. Um, this word Lord um, is, a, is a very common, actually, Greek word in the time of Jesus. Um, but do you know who it's used, up, used about? Caesar, yeah, it's used about Caesar. Uh, actually, Caesar is basically that word. Um, it's uh, it's printed on Roman coins, so a denarius would have uh, printed on one side, um, "Caesar is Lord." Um, it is to say that uh, that uh, that Caesar is the highest authority on earth, um, and it's printed right on the coins. This is why Jesus says, "Whose image is on the coin?" Yeah, so give it to him. But what's he saying? What's he asking for? Not just your money, but total devotion, total discipleship. Okay. Um, our archbishop tells the story that when he was 15, he heard this preaching. Um, by the way, his, his personal testimony is just something that will blow your socks off. I remember going to a very fancy dinner in an undisclosed country club that no one knows about in Houston. Um, and, and the reason you don't know about it is it's not on Google Maps, I'll put it that way. Um, and, and he was giving this talk. And uh, he talked about what it was like to be raised by a drug addict. Um, his mother was a drug addict. And, uh, and he came to faith uh, uh, in Atlanta. Um, and, and he remembers when it happened. And, and it happened through this, through this preaching. He said, I want you, this preacher said, I want you to imagine that your life is a, is a chest of drawers. 
and you've got a school drawer and you've got a, a friend's drawer and you've got a, uh, uh, a money drawer and you've got, a, you've got all these drawers, right? You've got a church drawer and you've got a, you've got a, you've got a Jesus drawer even. <laughs> and he said, he doesn't want one drawer. He wants the whole darn dresser. And, and this actually is what he will always say changed his life because he realized that he could not just sort of compartmentalize uh, the lordship of Jesus. And that's really what this question is getting at. It means that he, the Lord Jesus cannot, if he is Lord, he can't be compartmentalized. Um, he gets total prerogative over your life and mine, over every aspect of it. And there's a danger today, which is that most people tend to um, sort of cordon off this portion of life. Part of, part of living in the time of secularity is that we do this, don't we? We constantly make these decisions. Like, well, that's a religious decision, and that's a, that's a legal decision, and that's this, and that's that. And we just sort of, we, we like clean and easy distinctions, yeah? But does Jesus like clean and easy distinctions? Not when it comes to this, um, because, because uh, I love what Jerry Kramer said a few weeks ago, obedience is Jesus' love language. Um, and, and it's absolutely the case. So every aspect of life has to be surrendered. And that word is entirely intentional, right? Um, it, it doesn't, note it doesn't say, I, I give out of, my, uh, out of my benevolence to Jesus, you know, control of my life. What does it say? I surrender. I raise the white flag. I choose to no longer fight. I lay down my arms. I lay down my control. I lay down my, um, my ability to, um, to fight. That's what's going on here. Total surrender is the call of discipleship. Um, that's often lost, is it not? Because very often the, the way the gospel is preached is something like this. Well, you've got a life, and that's really good, and, it, and it's, you know, it's probably a good life. You should keep it and become a Christian. But what does Jesus say? Whoever seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. Um, so surrender, surrender is the call. Surrender is the only way. And you might say, well, I've done that. I did it 20 years ago. But the call is to keep doing it, keep surrendering, keep ceding control. Um, over and over and over again. All right, we're going to try to do a little bit of this next section. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Um, this is often a tough section of the catechism because it forces you to think about things you might not have thought about before, and that is the point. Um, how is Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Through the creative power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary, in personal union with his fully divine nature, at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. Okay, this seems very technical. I can assure you that this is just a quick summary of what happens in the New Testament. Um, okay, so first off, the Holy Spirit has creative power, yes? Do you agree with that, right? The Holy Spirit, I love the baptismal liturgy, that the Holy Spirit sort of hovered over the waters in creation. This is also in Genesis. Um, and, and, um, and, um, and is active in creation. Um, but the eternal son, so was there ever a time when Christ was not? No, 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 not at all. Uh, to say otherwise is actually heresy. It's called Arianism. It holds that, that, uh, that, that there was a time when uh, Christ did not exist. Uh, Christians do not hold this. We hold that Jesus Christ is co-eternal with the Father, has always existed from all time and forever in both directions, both back and forward. Um, and in fact, what we would just say is that Jesus is outside of time or that the, that the Son of God is outside of time just like the Father. Um, the eternal Son assumed a fully human nature. Okay, So is there any way in which Jesus Christ is not human? No. Now, I will freely admit to you, I made a major blunder when I was uh, taking my canonical exams before ordination. It was, um, I, the question was, what is, what is involved in human nature? And I said, well, uh, to have a body, to have a mind, a will, to be made in the image of God. And then I slipped up and I said, to sin? 
And the, and the instructor, who was a wonderful Oxford-trained uh, Oxford theologian, he jumped down my throat and he said, no, it isn't. <laughs> I said, oh, yes, oh, yes, sorry. You're right, I'm sorry. <laughs> because, because sin is not a part of human nature at the end of the day. Sin is not essential to human nature. We think it is because we're so used to it, okay? Um, but it's not a part of human nature. You can be human and not sin. Um, now, can you be a fallen human being and not sin? No. Um, there's the problem. Uh, but Jesus Christ is a full human being. Okay? He doesn't have to sin to be human. Okay? That old adage to err as human is just garbage. It's not true. Um, uh, in fact, Jesus shows us that. He receives this full human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary. And this is where I'm going to get up on my, you have, like, there's no such thing as a Christian who denies the virgin birth soapbox, okay? Um, I know that's become popular, and, and here's why it can't be, right? The teaching of the church is not, is not, that Jesus' human nature is sort of conceived in a test tube and implanted in the Virgin Mary, okay? It's not as though it's sort of created on the side and then put inside of her. His human nature is not specially created. He gets his human nature directly from his mother. Why is this essential? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It means that, it means that he is one of us. He comes from, he, he doesn't come from some sort of specially created nature. Okay? He has a, a full human nature that is received just like our human nature is from, from our parents. But he only has one. His entire human nature is, is taken from Mary, his mother. Um, if, if we can kind of conceive of what um, a non-virgin birth would look like, that would mean that his conception happened in a normal way, which would mean what? He has a human father. Meaning also? Well, yeah. Mary wasn't a virgin. Meaning what? He's just a normal human being, right? But we see this, the, two, the two natures in Christ being joined together in a personal union in the virgin birth. The virgin birth is essential, for, or actually the virgin conception is, is, is essential to this. Okay? Um, now, we say that he received this from the Virgin Mary in personal union with his fully divine nature at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. This is actually a reference to a Christian doctrine called the hypostatic union. That word actually just means in Greek personal, personal union. Um, what do we mean by that? Are there two divine persons in Christ? No. How many? One. How many natures? Two. Well, how do they exist? In a personal union, right? So this is actually just say, and this is why we can say things like the divine son of God. Okay. Um, and this is where actually something really, really goes even further, um, which is to say, and we'll get to this in question 56, but that um, the natures do not act independently from each other. Um, everything that Jesus does, he does as a full, as a person. Okay? This is really important, and we'll say why. Was Mary the only human parent of Jesus? Yes. Mary is held in honor, for she submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God as her own son. However, after God told Joseph of Mary's miraculous conception, Jesus took Mary as his wife, and they raised Jesus as their son. Um, Mary is held in honor. Um, this may be uh, something that you notice in Anglicanism, that um, Mary's held in a certain degree of honor, but not quite like you might see other Christians doing this. Um, there are Anglicans who are incredibly uh, um, uh, devoted to Mary in certain senses, but they do not worship her. Um, but this is all based on this understanding of her submission to the will of God. Um, this is what makes her uh, important in our, in our understanding. Um, she submits to the will of God. She says, let it be to me according to your word, uh, to the angel Gabriel. Um, and she bore the Son of God as her own son. Um, we do not believe that Joseph is a natural parent of, of Jesus. Um, this, this conception is miraculous. That's all this answer is saying. Go ahead. Yes. Um, so there's this grand question in, his, in Christian history, this idea of um, either it can be called praying to Mary or, uh, or um, Marian intercession, so to speak. Um, it's, it happens quite early in, in the church's history, and there's this question of, well, what is, what is our relation to Mary exactly? 
And the way the question's answered is this, and this happens very early on, and I mean early on like as in, in the fifth century it's answered. Um, the answer is essentially this. She's to be honored and held in honor, but not worshiped. Um, she's actually to receive a hyper, like a hyper honor, <laughs> but not worshiped. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, there's this understanding, she's a member of the communion of saints. And what do the saints do? Pray. They pray for us, they intercede for us. And so there's this tension, and I think it's a proper tension. Um, and so many Anglicans will say, well, there's nothing wrong with asking for the intercession of the saints. This happens all the time. Uh, and even though the articles say you shouldn't do it, um, or that in the time it was not something that was done, um, it's almost like you just can't keep people from doing it because it's something that, that Christians just will do. Um, however, and I'll say this strongly, this falls into the realm, and we talked about this recently, about the realm of personal devotion within Anglicanism. So, right, we have, we have a public liturgy. We talked about this at Christ Church 101. We have a public liturgy, right? Is there intercession to the saints in the public liturgy? No. Why? Because not everyone's going to do it. Um, not everyone's agreed that this is something that should happen. Does it happen in private devotion? Absolutely. And I would even say this, Anglicanism's position is, on it is this, there's nothing I can do to stop it. Or should do to stop it. Because it's going to happen. And it probably should happen, right? But we'll never say you have to. Why? Because it's not taught in Scripture. <laughs> do you see the point? So this is, really, this is another one of those great areas where we're setting the fences, Right? We're saying there's lots of practices within the fences. And some of you may say, I like that. I'm going to do that. Others of you may say, I'm super uncomfortable with that. And what do we say? Great. Okay. That's, and I, I will say this. That's, as I, as I grow, as I appreciate this more and more, I say that's part of the genius here, right? And you can even say, I think it's wrong. And I would just say to you, using what scripture? Right? And some of you might say, I think it's right. And I would say, using what scripture? Okay. So it has to be in this, in this realm of adiaphora, right? Um, and that's where Anglicanism is kind of um, conservative, highly conservative way is set. Why? Okay. Anybody in here a social conservative, right? Here's part of the problem. This is the problem with conservative identity today. Conservatives have lost their emphasis on human freedom. Would you agree with that? Okay, we got to get it back, right? Or, and I say we, you might not be, but, but, but this is an essential emphasis, right? Human freedom is at the core, okay? Um, Anglicanism holds that up. Part of being, part of being um, conservative with regard to Reformation is that um, we hold to a great degree of freedom for Christians to practice, especially in their private devotions, as they will. But we share commonality in our liturgy. So the public liturgies are common. We share it. We're all on board. But we don't do things that put people in this place of saying, I'm going to violate my conscience today. I can't do that. Do you see the point? Okay. That's really, that's really a key deal. Okay. Let's do question 56 quickly. What is the relationship between Jesus' humanity and his divinity? Jesus is both fully and truly God and fully and truly human. The divine and human natures of Jesus' person may be distinguished but can never be separated, changed, or confused. All that Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. And before he ever became human, he was eternally living and active within the unity of the Holy Trinity. I always tell the story, and I don't mean, to, don't mean to speak ill against a bishop, but I'm going to say something about a bishop, right? I, I was, uh, and I still am, I'm, I'm about to be named the, uh, the provincial canon for catechesis. Uh, but I was, at the time, the vice chair of the catechesis committee for the province. And I had to defend the catechism before 50-some-odd bishops. And one bishop asked about this question exactly. He said, this question would seem to indicate that God died on the cross. And we wouldn't want to say that, would we? And I had to say, in fact, bishop, that's exactly what we want to say. And I actually said to him, bishop, that's the gospel. Okay? This is the problem with separating um, the, the natures of Christ is that we wind up in theological weird space, right? That actually, that actually detracts from the gospel and the power of the gospel by saying Jesus does something only in one nature and not the other. He does it as a, as a divine person. 
This is very important, um, and it ties, and it usually is discovered in two ways. One is through what happens on the cross. Does God die on the cross? We say absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Does this mean that God ceases to exist? No. That's not what death is, first of all. We also refer to this when we speak about what it means for, um, for Jesus Christ to have a human mother and what we say about her. And in the fifth, and in the fifth century, the, the uh, fourth ecumenical council, which Anglicans uphold, we speak of Mary as the God-bearer, the Theotokos, meaning that she is the mother of God. Now, does that mean that the Godhead originates in her? No. It means she's the mother of the divine son of God, Jesus, right? Now, these are mind-blowing theological categories, but they're essential. It's called the communica communicatio idiomatum in Latin. It means that the idioms which we use regarding Jesus communicate back and forth about his, about his, about his natures. Um, and that uh, we can't speak in abstraction about one nature or the other. Um, another easy way to put it is to say something like this. When Jesus heals a leper, which nature is, doing, is affecting that healing? And you might say, oh, it's divine, obviously. You sure about that? Think about a perfectly sinless human being. Can a perfectly sinless human being heal people? Yes. Even sinners can heal others by the power of God. I've prayed for people and they've been healed. Does that mean that I'm no longer who I am? No. Okay, do you see the point? So it's, it's, it's to bring clarity to what the gospel is, um, which is that, that, in, that in, the, in the Son of God, the Son of God takes on a full human nature um, and from then on acts as one divine person. Okay. This is really important because then we don't wind up in the weeds. We don't say, well, his human body died on the cross, but it's God and it didn't happen. Uh, we don't sort of say, well, his human body was conceived in the womb of Jesus, but not the God. Because not God. then is the incarnation the incarnation? Okay. If that's not true, can we be saved? No. So there's, there are problems here, right? And, and the basic way to just say it is, Always be wary of these, these attempts to kind of isolate yourself from the great drama of the incarnation uh, because you'll always take the gospel down a notch. And you'll always be found guilty of saying, yeah, God did a lot, but he didn't quite do that much. Or the incarnation was, was dramatic and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and gets to the very nature of things, but, but not, it didn't go that far. No, as Christians we say, he went to the very, as far as you can go. Um, and of course, this is what Philippians says, he emptied himself. Um, so, that's that. We'll pick up next week. Thank you.